John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 317.ps12605, certificate number 46512, the day the clown cried. Starting the show off with a prolonged silence is really the only way I can do this topic justice. It builds suspense. It does. That's right. It is hard to know how to react to the day the clown cried. Even the idea of the day the clown cried, it's hard to, it's hard even to know how to react to the reaction to the day the clown cried. <laughs> uh, we grew up in an environment where a couple of things are, um, a couple of things kind of exist now that didn't exist before. And one of them is the... Almost everything exists now that didn't exist before. Interesting. When you look around. No, some things existed before. Everything that exists now did not exist before. That cushion, there's a time when it didn't exist. I see what you're saying. Unless some platonic ideal of that cushion has always existed. That's what I'm talking about. I see. The platonic ideal of that cushion existed before. Before they made it at... at uh, Crate and barrel. But I mean, the platonic idea, it, it, even if you think of us as being things whose atoms are constantly shifting in and out, the platonic idea does not have atoms shifting in and out of it. Sure. I mean, every cell in your body, most parts of your body re replace every cell in a matter of a decade or so. But you're not, this, the, you're not a different person. The platonic idea in my head of me your platonic it's idea, constant. Yeah, your platonic idea of you looks good in a beard, though. So, <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry, looks good without a beard. That's right. The platonic idea of me looks amazing without a beard. Um, one of the things that I've been meaning to talk about on the on the program for a long time, but it's hard to know exactly what the gateway into it is, is the idea of trash culture, which is what, what do you mean by the that? kind of the kind of uh, Generation X. Uh, late boomer, uh, uh, beginning of an appreciation of of not just B movies, but of like 
Z, schlock. Yeah, schlock. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, Joe Bob Briggs, so bad it's good kind of stuff. Yeah, there's 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 a culture that's made as garbage, but with a hope that it can kind of exploit, um, you know, an audience that has lower standards. And then there's the second appreciation of that material as so bad it's good, just exactly as you say. Camp. At camp. And it began as camp. Um and uh, and we saw it really rise in the kind of punk era of like the B52s appropriating all the 50s iconography that just like John Waters did super corny stuff that was taken seriously at first or at least had a kind of whimsy that was that uh, that hadn't then been kind of doubled down upon by the by punk rock's sort of hatred and re reappropriation of of older whimsy as a new kind of that's right whimsy you only get it once right right? you only get one fresh hey like what if we enjoyed this kind of uh bad thing in kind of a funny ironic way because because once that idea exists in the universe um a thing that was not there before you can never be pure again you know anytime you appreciate something ironically you're going to wonder uh you know is this are there downsides to this kind of insincerity? Is this any different than those other things? Was this being made on purpose for me to appreciate like this? And is that cynical? That's the thing. The first person to find a pink flamingo in their grandmother's front yard and and put it inside uh, their flower pot in their downtown New York loft is one thing. But when you go to Archie McPhee's now and buy pink flamingos by the by the crate. Once you give it a name like camp, it becomes an aesthetic and you, you know, we're pattern matching computers and we've seen 10 campy things and now we can extrapolate all of it. So there are people in our culture, people that you and I probably both know, maybe me more than you who lives in a more camp, you know, I've lived in a more camp universe probably than you have, although there's nothing more camp than Mormonism. (laughs) Mormonism does like musical theater. I feel like that. I feel like we could join hands with the gays uh, just in in our love for um, mid-century musical theater. The Venn diagrams do overlap, but but I've known so many people whose aesthetic was uh, derived from what you could find in a thrift store. You're wearing a Hawaiian shirt right now. I am. I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt and, and seersucker pants, and I have a what I thought was a non-ironic mustache. <laughs> but the only way I can actually... That's, yeah, I'll, I'll be the judge of that, John. I can only wear it out if I pretend that I'm being ironic. It's like, ha, 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 I have a mustache and look like a creep. But when I when I shaved my beard, I really sincerely believed I was going to be handsome. But trash culture... Uh, because we live in a world of it and that world overlapped real culture and, and sort of promulgated a version of real culture. Now it's, it's really hard to distinguish what's ironic and what's not. And I I talk about that all the time, the kind of irony wars of the nineties. It gives the artist an out for sure. Right. Like the artist can wait to see how the mustache is appreciated. And then say, ah, yes, I agree with you. And and the opposite thing, should that come up? But almost all of the suburban parents that I know from uh, my daughter's interactions in school uh, all freely admit to watching television shows like Love Island and, uh, you know, these shows where people they would not want to have anything to do with in life, they're, they're super happy to pull up and watch them all 
trapped in a house together where they're trying to determine like who's going to be the winner who's the bachelorette that's going to that's going to go off with the muscle muscle guy i had somebody who would not tell me why they couldn't come to a thing on i guess monday and she was like i can't i can't tell you why but i can't be there it's just it's a tv thing i can't i can't tell you what it is and i had to think about it and i was like the bachelor and she she looked at the floor yeah. you know that but she genuinely, that's not hate watching or guilty. Pl- I mean, she genuinely enjoys it, but she feels like the culture has shamed her. Well, sure. And, and, and I, I think a lot of- The culture's right. Those shows are not good. But a lot of people begin to watch them, like like so many things, with a kind of ironic tee-hee, like, oh, let's watch this terrible TV. And then they immediately get hooked on the on the cocaine of it. It's and, well-designed, like cocaine. It's, it, it do, it's engineered to do what it does. Right. But- Especially where comedy and comedians interact with the culture, there's um, there's that zone where comedians have to interact with something, right? Comedians can't just, I mean, unless you're Jeff Foxworthy, you can't make hay out of just what your neighbors are doing with their with their lawn tractors. You know, you've got to be commenting because comedy stand-up comedy especially is a form of news broadcast in a way right they're they're uh, digesting culture for us and finding what's funny or what's dark or what's dismal about it and kind of turning it around but a lot of uh a lot of the appreciation of stand-up comedy is that it's introducing you to kind of a world of ideas that's critical or reflective of of yeah, what's being it has consumed. to be a reference to something you understand too, or you wouldn't be on board. Right. But once you do, they're gonna they're gonna reframe it. They're gonna make you see it in a new way. And if it's done well, it will stick with you. Like to this day, every time I'm not some huge Jerry Seinfeld fan, but I think he has a joke about how, you know, is this a Seinfeld joke? If the aliens saw one species picking up the other species poop, they would have the wrong idea of who was in charge. <laughs> and I think that every time I bag my dog's poop. So once a day I think about the Seinfeld joke that I heard once. And that's not the greatest joke in the world, but it really does show how like a clever reframing like that can really change how you see the world. Absolutely. And comedians, at least of our generation, um, you know, I think the comedians of the, of the boomers and the comedians that, that sort of laid the groundwork for the Seinfelds, the, the comedians of the seventies, they had mass culture to work with. You know, they, they had, moms and dads and the greatest generation and world war two and conformism and all of the, all of this unexplored turf where you could make a whole comedy album about just what it's like to call the dentist and try and make an appointment. It was a monoculture. You could assume that everyone in your audience had the exact same experiences. And of course, a lot of that was done by just pretending huge swaths of America didn't exist. Huh. And, you know, and you're aiming it at a very particular white middle-class America. But also back then there was more of a universal culture that, that persisted just because of the way the mass media had just kind of come of age. Well, and comedy, stand-up comedy was a kind of, uh, a, like an exclusive cultural venue. You didn't, you, there weren't stand-up comics performing in colleges probably then, or, you didn't have diversity of it because it was right. still a, a, an area relegated to San Francisco and New York. And it was a like eight, kind eight of, guys on the Ed Sullivan show, right. basically. And it was unusual when there was, you know, it took 20 years to get a one woman doing it. Yeah, right. And the, then they treat her terribly. And then 10 more years to get a black guy doing it. And 
they treated everyone terribly. Yeah, but, it was Mort Saul and four other guys that were doing yeah. stand up for so long. But but when when stand up became the new rock and roll, which was true in recent memory, at least in in our lifetimes, not only in our lifetimes, but in our adult lives, or at least mine. Right? There was not. I guess I guess Steve Martin was the first stand up comic to fill stadiums. Fill stadiums, yeah. right? But there, and then there's also that era that came right after that that kind of late '80s, early '90s era of every stand-up comedian from mediocre to good just getting some seven-figure sitcom deal and becoming a cultural icon the yeah. same way you know the same way a, an Elvis or a Bob Dylan would have in earlier times now it's Tim Allen or Ellen DeGeneres or you know anybody who's mildly amusing on Johnny Sam Kinison yeah talk I'll, about mildly amusing well I like Sam Kinison <laughs> but like you know it could just be kind of the the uh, well, a, a pleasant persona would get some somebody right. a pilot and a and a, a huge fat network paycheck. No, I was thinking of the guy with the giant sideburns. What was his name? Andrew Dice uh, Clay. Andrew Dice Clay. Oh, I don't like him. Yeah, that was good stuff. Good, good top shelf American comedy. Because like we've all heard nursery rhymes that don't have uh, boning in them. But what if? <laughs> what if they did? But a lot of a lot of comedy over the course of the last twenty or thirty years became self-referential or it became culturally referential. It wasn't, it, it, it was not necessary that comedy be addressing a broad, uh, cultural truth or, or something, you know, out of middle America, you could have very niche comedy that was interested in, um, in, trash culture or interested in culture that was only accessible to people that were already in stand-up comedy, comic comedy about comedy, comedy right. about, I mean, that's, that's the internet, you know, Twitter comedy is, uh, you know, a reference to a reference to a reference. Right. right. And yeah. And, mean, and, and mean subcultures sub, and subcultures though, you know, that could finally have their own sets of comedy where, you know, Red Fox can do jokes that you couldn't do on TV, that a wide audience wouldn't understand, that a network censor wouldn't let pass, but now his subculture can have their own voice. Right. One of the great, um, one of the great, I think, legendary tentpoles, that one of the totems of 90s LA-based stand-up comedy, LA, New York, Kind of that axis, the Upright Citizens Brigade, Largo, that comedy. The alt-comedy scene. Alt-comedy. A reaction against all these um, club guys getting their seven-figure deals. What if comedy was a little more... Renegade. Uh, renegade, nervous, yeah. edgy, uh, unpredictable, um, less formulaic. Mr. Show, Bob Odenkirk, people that were that were on stage either being themselves or being... Um, Every men and women. Part of the laugh is you don't actually understand the construction of the joke or what might happen next. It's right. it's uh, performance art as much as anything. And one of the big, big uh, sort of first kind of um, what what am I trying to say? Uh, an item around which a, a totem, right? A, a a golden calf around which alt comedy kind of not coalesced because it was going to happen anyway, but a thing that happened that sort of defined it in its mid nineties, uh, milieu, its mid nineties identity, uh, was the arrival on the scene of 
the day the clown cried. And by arrival on the scene, I mean awareness. Rediscovery. Rediscovery. And it, it started with a ma- uh, an article in Spy Magazine that you and I both read in, the, in its moment. Spy yes. Magazine being maybe a show we should do uh, on the Omnibus because it was a short-lived but extremely influential uh, Gen X sort of literary comedy magazine that 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 explored satire. this this satirical place where it wasn't clear where the joke was going to end what it was based upon like the funny one uh the when they ran an obituary for Adam um the kid from 8 is enough uh Adam Rich Adam Rich they ran an obituary for Adam Rich that was like a long sort of uh um celebration of his life and his his career <laughs> I don't remember this issue and Adam Rich wasn't dead oh. at all and it was <laughs> uh you know it was pre-internet so it sparked all these memory you know it sparked it even in the culture of people that would read spy um yeah they, they had a very dark take and they no sacred cows you know right. like today it seems hacky to be like you know, no sacred cows, you know, any target. It just seems like a Bill Maher thing to say. But back then it was kind of unusual to have somebody actually, what would they do? They would, they sent tiny checks to a bunch of millionaires to see who would actually cash them. Right. Do- Donald Trump actually did cash his- Cashed his 15 his cent two, check. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, what was the joke of Adam Rich, the, the big sort of uh, like uh, enshrinement of Adam Rich in the culture? Who Who was the victim of that joke? It wasn't Adam Rich because he was- kind of in on it. It was, it was a joke on you, the magazine reader. Um, and so spy was a lot of fun, a lot of fun to read. You, you said you read that article in college. Uh, I was in high school, I think when that came out and I actually wrote for my, for my student paper in high school, I wrote a kind of, uh, attempt at a, at a high school version of spy, except, yeah. you know, turning, the the spy house voice, the acid drip dripping prose onto, you know, the bake sale or the or the, the high school play. You know, it turned out to be, uh, you know, I got called into the principal's office because right, burning down those sacred cows. The, the, of the your school did not appreciate, you know, that <laughs> private <laughs> Christian school in Seoul. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you gotta. I had not yet learned to punch up. I guess. Well, no, I guess that's that's punching up. The bake sale, you know, ultimately supports the man. But the, this article in Spy was a kind of classic Vanity Fair or New Yorker style expose, except what they were exposing was uh, a film made in the early 70s uh, starring Jerry Lewis that had never been released. And written and directed by Jerry Lewis, is that right? No, it was it was directed by Jerry Lewis, but it was written by Joan O'Brien, uh, who wrote it as a spec script. So it was pitched at the time to um, to a variety of kind of, I don't know, maybe maybe B-list actors of 1970, Milton Berle, Dick, Dan- Dick Van Dyke, uh, even Bobby Darin, but sort of nobody bit because the script was a pretty dark take. Um, this was at a time, 1970, where there had not really been any movies that depicted the Holocaust in the West. It was a... Isn't that interesting? 1970. Like, I mean, there were some documentaries. There was The Diary of Anne Frank that came out in 59. That's true. Um, but uh, And uh, 
a, a you know a couple of films that dealt with Holocaust victims as they re-entered the culture, as they struggled with their memories. But the trope of the serious award bait film that gets audience goodwill just by tackling the Holocaust, possibly self-importantly, you know, that's that's a post Schindler's List invention. It did not exist at the time, or or you could you could make a, a case that it was um, that was the miniseries The Holocaust, which yeah. came out in the late seventies, and it was a one of those TV events where everybody sat down for a whole week and watched it every night, and it was. It's, water funny how, it's funny how those haven't aged well at all. There's still some no. there's still roots. some memory of roots, but you know, I'm sure 50 million people watched War and Remembrance, sure. and now like. I don't remember anything about the war in remembrance. It was a, it was a, it was the style of the time, mm-hmm. uh, but it was water cooler fodder, right? You'd show up at work and everybody would be talking about about some Sidney Sheldon adaptation that they watched part six of. And maybe the last one was the Civil War by the uh, by Ken Burns was the last time I remember at least everyone in the country watching a television program together night after night. Where I, I, I at the time I was doing door to door fundraising for the National Environmental Law Center in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. And I was, you know, they would drop me off in some neighborhood and I would spend all evening ringing doorbells and trying to get people to support the Clean Air Act. And everybody was watching PBS? Yeah, and people would open the door and they'd be like, what? And I'm like, oh, hey, I'm from the National. And they'd be like, are you crazy? I don't know who's going to win Antietam. We're watching the Civil War. And they would slam the door and I'd be like, because it was a, it was a perfect overlap of Venn diagram. Who right. do we want to support the Clean Air Act? Who is watching Some public television? Northern Virginia neighborhood where everybody's watching PBS. Yeah, yeah. So that's I think the last one of those. But 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 Roots and the Holocaust were the first two I remember. But you're absolutely right that in 1970, the trope of the uh, you know the black and white or muted color depiction of people in a camp hadn't yet become a part of the culture. And I mean, you had Hogan's heroes that <laughs> depicted a camp of a kind. A Stalag 17, but those are right. POW They're camps. POWs. Those, it's, you know, those keep a, there's barbed wire, right. but there's no gas chambers. And the pitch for this film, uh, it was not really a comedy. It was a, it was an extremely dark comedy ish but not it was it was not played for laughs the pitch was that a clown and i mean a, a, a literal circus clown clown with a with a fake nose and and grease paint makeup who was part of a, a of a european circus um was bad at his job and gradually uh was sort of railroaded by the head clown out of the circus he made some uh importune Comments about the the Nazis who were at that point occupying Paris. Is he is he Jewish, our man? No. Oh, um, but he was sent to a political camp as a as a war as a protester yeah. as a somebody who'd said bad things He's about the Nazis, a subversive. And then once at the political camp, the camp was turned into a concentration camp. A, a, a trainload of Jews arrived, and the clown. Um, the titular clown, this character, started to kind of try and perform for the residents of the camp. They rejected him because he was a bad clown and a and a sort of selfish, self-important guy. Uh, but he realized that even as he, he was being kicked by the grown-ups in the camp, 
that the little Jewish children on the other side of the barbed wire were laughing and loved his performance. Oh, I see. The people who were turning on him are his fellow, his fellow subversives. Yeah, his fe- the other people in the camp that were there for political reasons. Communists hate the circus. Uh, communists do, but th- we're talking about Nazis now. No, but the communists are the ones... Oh, the guards are kicking him? I thought it was his fellow... It was political but, undesirables, but they were Parisians, so most of them weren't. Oh, oh, they I weren't see. there for. The, They're just French resistance fighters. Yeah, and just people that said bad things about the occupation in cafes too loud and were overheard. And again, this is at a time when representations of 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 World War II and Nazi concentration camps they still had a lot of well camp for lack of a better term like camp in the camps one of the ways that that in the 60s people tried to understand world war ii was it was they were just far enough away from it that they could make um they could make movies that were that were playful you know where where the nazis were goofballs instead of being sinister and and we didn't quite know what concentration camps were in the popular culture. It, it, they hadn't been depicted. How do you depict that? I mean, how do you talk about the Holocaust in a movie? Uh, these were things that hadn't quite ever been felt out. I mean, I'm sure the the kind of the residual anti-Semitism of the time keep you know, you know, brave liberals are aware of Anne Frank being a hit on Broadway, but it hasn't seeped down into say primary school curricula, right? Like it's not part of our, like, you know, today you can't grow up without understanding the tragedy of the Holocaust in America. And I think maybe in the sixties and seventies, it was a lot more possible. It was absolutely possible. It's why, it's why learning about it. And I've talked about this on, on our other, on my show, Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast, where it's impossible for us now to know, to think of a time when 20 years after World War II, the end of World War II, the Holocaust would still be a uh, not really popularly understood even 30 years later. Hmm. Uh, And why would that be? I mean, certainly the nation of Israel had every reason to, um, to have, you know, popularized it in the in the sure. public understanding. And there was no contemporary uh, cover-up. Like, the, the discovery of the camps and the atrocities there made the American papers. It did. And, well, were, it was and were part of anti-Nazi propaganda. Part of Nuremberg. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it was a combination of, you know, not just sort of pervasive anti-Semitism, but a thing that was unfathomable. And how how do you go on? It's a touchy topic, you know, certainly, because you know you're going to offend you know, it's the same reason you didn't see interracial anything on TV until the 70s, because you know a segment of your audience is going to harumph or be offended. And maybe you just, artists and, and media just turn away. And, and partly, I, I have to suspect that, that there was a tremendous complicity in the Holocaust, in the sense that the United States did not really act to help the Jews there, you know, there were quotas on their immigration throughout the war, whole ships full of, of Jews is trying to escape, um, were, were refused entry into ports and turned back. The British mandate in Palestine didn't allow immigration. You know, there, the Jews so didn't guilt as well. Yeah. The Jews didn't have any friends and it's very difficult, I think for the United States in particular, who imagined that we were the ultimate victors of world war two, that we defeated the Nazis. Hard then also to to say, and this is part of a cultural reassessment that we've 
been going through and are still going through and going through in a, in a big way right now where um, over the decades, each successive generation is more and more prepared to describe the American story in less and less glowing terms. A, a you, more, can, you can leave tacit complicity out of a story very easily. Yeah. You, have to, you have to actively examine it. You have to look for it. Autumn is here, John. Autumn is here, and you know what Season autumn makes... Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. You know what it makes me think of? What does it make you think of? Well, I, it makes me think of new t-shirts of my favorite media properties. The gift-giving season is going to begin fairly soon. Mm-hmm. And here at Omnibus, here in the bunker, we have not always done the best job at keeping a steady stream of Omnibus merch no, it's true. out in the universe. It's true. Our futurelings are often... Uh, they often contact us. They're clamoring for omnibus branded merch. They're naked. They're shirtless. Yep. Uh, because fashions change and seasons change. Seasons change and so seasons do we. Seasons change. And now it's fall and you want some new, I mean, a lot of futurelings are t-shirt wearers, let's be honest. We are going to have a steady stream of t-shirt designs going forward. Start, starting this month. What do you mean a stream? Do you mean like different t-shirt designs over time? Yes. There's going to be new shirt designs every month. Uh, for October in our t-shirt store, we have brought back the two t-shirt designs that we had briefly available well over a year ago, <laughs> whenever that was. Right. Uh, a time period so brief that many of you may not remember. Those shirt designs are now available again at mediocrity.com. That's M-E-D-I-O-C-R-I-T-E-E. So mediocrity, but with a T-E-E like t-shirts instead of T-Y. Dot com slash omnibus. And then every month we're going to have a new set of, of t-shirt designs. So... Um, Collect them all. <laughs> <laughs> so this month, it's the Omnibus and Futureling designs that uh, longtime fans may remember from a year or two ago. Uh, the shirts are great. They uh, print on next-level shirts, which are soft, high-quality. Uh, we've got women's size uh, small through triple XL and men's size small through quadruple XL. Um, these are our, this is our friend Dave Rutledge of Meh helping us out with shirt sales. He's the guy that owns my styrofoam head. And made you tell stories that were better than my stories on the show. He has bought your styrofoam head not once but twice on the open market. What's the normal number of times to buy someone's styrofoam head? I'd say two. It's I think it's under one. Really? It's closer to zero than one. Let's see. I'm thinking about all the styrofoam heads of famous people that I've purchased. Do, do you have a list of those celebrities yeah, ready to go? Most of them I've only bought at one time. Who are some examples of those celebrities? I have Rue McClanahan yeah, at home. I have uh, Tony Millionaire. <laughs> and uh, let's see. Uh, I have Dom DeLuise. You do? I, I, li- I like to get giant celebrity heads, uh, styrofoam heads of celebrities with giant heads. I have Jason Isbell. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's nice. It's a big head. Um, so if you are uh, missing... Omnibus shirts in your wardrobe. If you're looking for omnibus gift giving ideas for the upcoming holiday season, that's right. Because if you if you order now, the shirts will be in your hot little hands or tentacles or antennae. It's true. You must be a bipedal omnibus listener with the normal number of four limbs. I'm afraid. Not necessarily. If you have eight limbs, you can put two of them through the sleeves of this t-shirt and maybe drill your own holes if necessary. Drill your own holes. That's the omnibus motto. Go check out the shirt designs at mediocrity.com slash omnibus and look out for new designs every month. So the script for the 
Day the Clown Cried um, was optioned by a producer by the name of Nat Voschberger, who wanted to make uh, who wanted to make the film and had you know what he, he well he signed contracts promising that he would uh, that he'd pay Joan O'Brien fifty thousand dollars for the rights to to produce her screenplay, and then he approached Jerry Lewis and said, Jerry Lewis, famous comedian, one of the one of the absolute stars of that era of uh, somewhere between stand-up and Johnny Carson guests. Hard to express today how big a hit Lewis and Martin were yeah. at the height of their power. They had screaming fans outside hotels like Beatlemania. And um, even after Dean Martin split from Jerry Lewis, he was, um, well, like a lot of those stand-up comics, on uh, on the surface of things, a beloved American entertainer. And then behind the scenes, you realize that they were all monsters, every one of them. Not Ellen DeGeneres. Oh, wait. Yes, Ellen. Yeah, even Ellen. But yeah, Jerry Lewis was uh, kind of became an auteur directing and producing his own comedy films by themselves, which were huge box office hits. And, a, and it's, it became a big joke that he was beloved by the French cinématistes. Oh, yeah. The, um, the, you know, the French at this time had made a not just an art form out of film, but an art form out of criticism of film. So, yeah. And the fact that Jerry Lewis was regarded as a great auteur and a, and a, and a hero of France became, uh, like a, a like a punchline, but in 19, 19- but it was true. It was true. Right. I don't know. I don't know what they saw, but they loved it. Or what they still see because that's still true there in France. That but, can't be true of the rising generation. Can it? I don't know. I mean, sure. It's true that kids will grow up watching whatever old movies their parents watch every Christmas. I do not uh, subscribe to Cahiers de Cinema, nor do I My know- subscription ran out in 1968. <laughs> do but. I know any of the editors? But I, I imagine there hasn't been, if there's been any reappraisal of the films of Jerry Lewis, I think it's all, they always come down with, you know, by adding an additional star. He's up to seven and a half stars now out of five. <laughs> anyway, so- uh, so Jerry Lewis was offered the role and he, in reading the script, he thought, now, wait a minute, you know, this is a, an incredibly dramatic role. It would, a, be a, it would be a first for him. Uh, it would be a first for him and also like a first for the world. No one had done a film about the Holocaust. And I should say that there were Eastern European films depicting the Holocaust, but within the Soviet sphere, there was definitely a take on the Holocaust. What's the Soviet take? The take. Sorry, the Soviet take. The Soviet take was that the Holocaust was just another component in the uh, in the dialectic, in the eternal struggle between the capitalist West and the the liberation of the socialist East. And so, you know, Jews and other concentration camp victims were just sort of depicted as shadowy and passive groups of people who marched uh, passively to their death whilst the, you know, the heroes of the films were all the kind of Stalingrad. Well, the defenders the, of, yeah, the, so the socialist, uh, uh, liberators and the bad guys were, it was less Nazism or even, um, even antisemitism, but more just capitalism and the, you know, the rapacious nature of it. So, and it's less of a one-off event, you know, a, a, a remarkable, tragic, never-to-be-repeated one-off event, and more of a, well, it's just what you'd expect from 
Yeah, this is what happens. This is what happens to the poor. Uh, you know, and in 1945, the, it was late-stage capitalism even then. <laughs> uh, but, but, but those were Eastern European films, and they didn't, they didn't come to the West. They weren't part of um, what you would call mainstream film. But as Jerry Lewis kind of was encouraged to encouraged by uh, uh, Voschberger to 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 not just star in this film but helm it, he was given the opportunity to direct it as well. He eventually kind of found it irresistible, and later was criticized, as we'll see, as as doing it as you as you suggest, kind of as Oscar bait or an attempt to make himself a dramatic actor. Um, Jerry Lewis is Jewish yes. and had plenty of motivation, uh, altruistic motivation to, to introduce this topic into, into cinema. He could have seen this as important. I think I so. Mean, it's, I guess it's arguable whether he also is self-important about it, but. Right. And, and as we'll see, that's, that continues to be true about Holocaust movies, even into now. But the movie's kind of a tricky tightrope act, even if done perfectly to try to make a black comedy about the Holocaust. But, well, so what, uh, so what, uh, I mean, the what, t- so the title invokes something that's already kitschy, a crying clown, like those velvet clown. paintings of the sixties. It, it yeah. seems like it, it should have set off warning bells even in, when did they make this movie? The 1971, 70s? 71, 71, 72. They started to make the film. So the crying clown was already kind of a eye rolling trope. But what, what happens in the film is as Jerry Lewis realizes that he is, funny to the kids and starts to perform he's reviled by his by his campmates but he starts to perform for the jewish kids who have are just behind barbed wire have no hope in this camp and all of a sudden here's this clown that's that's putting on a show for them and he uh he succeeds for the first time in his life as a clown because he's never succeeded before he's always been a bad clown and now he's a great clown. I guess he just has a more desperate audience. Or they're kids, they're children. I mean, uh, and maybe more if desperate, but if also... If he's a clown, wouldn't children have come to his circus before? I suppose... Was he just performing for French adults? I mean, he did have a job in the circus. I think he was bad by adult standards. But, you know, as you and I both know, kids have no standards. He should have been a birthday clown. The day of the birthday yeah, clown cried. That's right. I mean, kid, if you just smear mud on your face, a kid will laugh for an hour. Sure. Uh, but the Nazis in the movie realize that he is a successful clown with these kids. And then they say to him, you need to come over and entertain these kids so that they will passively march toward the oven. Like literally he needs to be their the last show? Their Pied Piper. Oh boy. And they promise him that he will, you know, survive the war if he just performs this kind of, uh, uh, that he would, you know, he would effectively become a kind of capo, uh, a Jew that was working on behalf of the Nazis to, you know, facilitate, to basically be within the Jewish community as a kind of cop or collaborator. And then the tragic end of the film yeah, is Yeah, what does that, he decide? It's not, it's not even clear to me what the right choice is there. Well, so he, you know, he entertains the children. He makes them sort of laugh as they walk into the ovens, but then... He, you know, can't bear it and holds hands with the children and walks into the ovens himself. Mm. Curtain. And Joan O'Brien, the writer, 
wrote it as a tragedy. Uh, and, you know, it's very difficult to see how there's anything redemptive about it. Like, he doesn't go into the ovens and the world is changed in any way. It's just a kind of, he becomes in his last moment altruistic, I guess, or or less of a selfish drunk. But Lewis, as the director, and as a famous kind of slapstick comedian, can't help but start to impart some bit of... The rhythms of comedy on yeah, this? Yeah, some bit of, of, um, of comedy, but this becomes... This becomes sort of wrapped up in the criticism of the film that in some ways became, um, at least in our culture, bigger than the film itself. And there's a re- the, the primary reason being that the film was never released. No, almost no one has ever seen it, right? No one has ever seen it because the film wasn't finished. Um Lewis took over the production. The first thing he did was change the name of the lead character from Carl Schmidt, this kind of unlikable bastard clown, to um, Helmut Dork. Dork? D-O-R-D-O-O-R-K. Dork. So he has a funny name like a like a Groucho Marx or a Jerry Lewis character. Yeah. And mm. this is, you know, this is kind of the first sign that like, oh dear. Not having seen it, we can't really assess how how badly Jerry Lewis misread the tone of the film. And the people who have seen excerpts of it, because the film was never finished, and as we'll see, um, no extant copy of all of the footage really exists in the world. Jerry Lewis did take an unfinished rough cut of the film away with him when he left the production. And the problem was that not Voschberger did not have the money that he claimed to have. Mm. And they began production on the film and Joan O'Brien wasn't paid. And in the, in not having actually paid her, Voschberger did not actually have the rights to produce the film. Jerry Lewis, once he was in it, he toured Auschwitz and Dachau, which this was before that was really a, a pilgrimage to make. Yeah. He lost 35 pounds on a diet of, of only grapefruit uh, in order to uh, prepare for the film. Convincingly play a camp. And then resume. he invested $2 million of his own dollars to make the film because Voschberger had, had, uh, had none of the cash to do it. Then once the film was almost finished, Joan O'Brien sued, uh, had seen a cut of the film and said it was an abomination and she wouldn't allow, uh, you know, because nobody had the rights, she wouldn't allow this interpretation of her script to be made. Well, there's one vote of somebody who thinks it's in bad taste. That's right. Even if we can't be sure, but the original author sure didn't think so. And so the film, so Lewis, you know, takes this rough cut of it. Most of the footage is retained by um, the studio that, that, that bankrolled it uh, uh, in addition to the $2 million that, uh, that Jerry Lewis invested himself. Um, and the film disappeared. 
throughout the 1970s and 80s, it became a kind of legendary debacle, and it's a wonderful thumbnail joke. Jerry Lewis made uh, made a Holocaust movie about a clown that led the children into the ovens. Can you imagine a worse thing? And the, the movie took on a kind of legend as the worst movie ever made. No one had seen it, but it was the worst movie ever made. Until this spy article in 1992, when Harry Shearer of uh, Spinal, Spinal Tap, Tap and, and, SNL and, and, and the Simpsons. Simpsons fame, also a kind of legendarily... Um, He's a crabby guy. Disliked guy in Hollywood. I mean, maybe not hated, but... And a former child actor. Did you know that? He is like, uh, you know, as as long ago as, I don't know, the 40s, he's like Jack Benny's kid in things. Is that right? Yeah, he's got a he's got a lifetime of, uh, of show business. Well, Harry Shearer had seen the movie. Someone... Um, Someone had a copy of it and Oh yeah, sorry. He's the he's the Eddie Haskell uh prototype in the Leave It to Beaver pilot. Oh really? That's how old Harry Shearer is. Sorry, so he somehow saw a part of it. Somehow saw it in in 1979 and in this kind of exposé written in 92 about the movie. Kind of and it was again a legend and so Spy was going to dig into it and see if they talked to everybody, what they could uncover about it. Just a great magazine article. And nobody had nobody really heard of it, no. like outside of show business. No, it was just a thing like the uh, the aristocrats or was it, yeah, a, it was a show joke. business thing. Yeah. Uh, but Harry Shearer had seen it and gave lots and lots of raw meat quotes about it. That it was, uh, he said primarily that that there are a lot of things in Hollywood that you hear about that are that are described as the best or the worst thing you've never seen. And then when you see it, it's a letdown. But in this case, he said that seeing the film was better than the legend. It was an awe-inspiring. Not because the movie's good, because it's in as bad a taste as you can imagine. It's so drastically wrong, he said. Its pathos and its comedy are so wildly misplaced that you could not, in your fantasy of what it might be like, improve on what it really is. And so... In a in a magazine article, it became um, it became the holy grail of a certain kind of trash culture that in '92 we were ripe for. We were at this point in '92 was the absolute you know um, apotheosis. Of, we, we were we were so jaded by irony. You needed the jolt of actually Jerry Lewis dressed as a clown in a concentration camp to, to feel anything because Jerry Lewis was already a figure of tremendous ironic fun, uh, for, for our generation that, that didn't live through his original. We never saw the, the Beatlemania. The movies didn't age that well. We no. saw him on the telethons, a certain kind of corniness. There's a lot of like racism jokes about, you know, just every kind of fifties and sixties, uh, ableism and and all the things that even by the '90s, although we hadn't given a name to it, it no longer went by uncommented upon. And an easy to imitate voice, right? So you right. could you could kind of convey the surface wow. level of of his of his frenetic comedy without actually getting into its appeal at all. Did you watch the telethons growing up? I never did. I did. It was uh, the Jerry Lewis telethon telethons on behalf of. Uh, raising money for muscular dystrophy mm-hmm. 
were, again, huge events in the culture. Everyone, like the Miss America pageant, everybody sat down and watched them because there were only three channels on TV. What a beautiful country we were. (laughs) You will watch these ladies in bathing suits do nothing for like four hours. This is it. You know, it's, I mean, I'm still astonished that people sit and watch the Oscars or the Emmys and they are, they're absolutely akin. The Miss America pageant and the Oscars were, I, I bet you they vied for one another in the ratings. We um, were comparatively celebrity starved compared to today. Now, if you want to keep up with any celebrity, big or small, you have hundreds of avenues to do so. Back then it was, you know, you might only see them on, on the tonight show once a year or yeah. they, they're guesting on, on love boat. You know, they you had limited opportunities to see the people like, so what a, what an event to see so many people in a star-studded firmament. There's Buddy Hackett right there. I mean, <laughs> ready to make us laugh. So throughout the 90s, uh, the day the clown cried became a kind of fodder. And there were uh, some some scripts leaked. It became a kind of um, a thing that even to know about it marked you as an insider because there was no way for the mass culture to be made aware of it. There weren't even clips. Um, so it was just a joke within a joke within a joke. And then what a white whale it becomes that nobody can see it. Right. Like that, that's a source of fascination too. In, in particular that the script existed. And so... Because of the script... You could do it... If you did, if you did a reading of the script in a Jerry Lewis voice, obviously the whole... Like the, um, the tone of the film is going to be awful... And we don't see him acting it dramatically, so we don't know we don't know what that looks like. Um, then another turning point was when Patton Oswald, and this is in the late '90s, when Patton and people like Bob Odenkirk and David Cross and Paul F. Tompkins, these were underground comedians. They were known. I mean, only a handful of them had even had their first HBO stand-up. It was when HBO was still a thing that uh, hadn't yet be, you know, become a mainstream. It was still an, an edgy place for edgy comics. Um, Patton Oswalt got a copy of the script and started to do live readings of it at Largo, which at the time was a, a little supper club in L.A., a very dark and cramped little place where alt alt comedy happened. Uh, he got his friends together, some of the aforementioned names, and they just did a staged reading. I mean, they weren't really acting it out. They just all had scripts in their hands. Each had a role and, or, or several roles and acted out the film. If I remember right, this isn't one of Patton's books. Uh, the lead was actually played by Toby Huss, who, yeah. who I do not think of as a Alt, you know, he's a now he's a, just a beloved character actor. You might have seen him on *Halt and Catch Fire* or uh, or uh, *Carnivale* or what was he just on last year? He wasn't in *Watchmen*. Uh, I can't remember, but I guess he was. The, he played the lead. He did, and did, and that's the wonderful thing about Largo and and Los Angeles in general. Like people mix and mingle, serious actors and comedians. Um, if someone as beloved as Patton Oswalt asks you a, asks you to to be in his production, you know. There's a there's a good as not chance that that you can get you, not just a, a serious actor or actress to join the production, but become friends and start doing shows together all the time. Um, so they did this as an underground production, and they didn't charge. It was just a thing, word of mouth. Like 
hey, everybody, come by the bar, basically. We're going we're gonna to read the script to the day the clown cried. Do you think the not charging and word of mouth is because they're aware of their, of their limited legal footing to do this? No, or? I think it less that it was just um, that the Largo was a clubhouse and friends, it was a yeah. place that you did. I mean, hard to, it's hard to remember a time when this type of thing wouldn't seem worth money. <laughs> but in 1997, uh, I mean, I remember a time when the idea of charging $5 for a thing that you did uh, required that that thing be pretty good. And to just, to even charge $5 for a bunch of people to get up and read a script out loud, it would have felt like, come on, who do you think you are? Right. Um, but it became popular enough that they said, you know, we're going to, I think it was the LA Weekly that said, hey, we're going to put this on our list of uh, cool things this week. And they, um, they put it up online or I'm sorry, they put it up in there. Uh, it, it came out in print. Patton Oswald thought that that would be hilarious and, or hilarious that, uh, that it would be a thing that people would come to and still didn't charge money for it. But on the afternoon of the, of the show that had been, Publicized unusually in the weekly. Yeah, that, you know, it just had one little ad. Um, the day of the show, Patton is standing out in front of Largo, and a guy walks up to him and and throws a piece of paper at him and says, you've been served. Uh, there's a, you know, there's an injunction now against you doing the show. And a guy shows up a little bit later, this kind of furious red in the face lawyer type who says that he has acquired the rights. Finally, the actually secured the rights to make the film remake the film. Um, he wants to remake a film. That's a famous, that's an infamous failure. This time they're going to do it and they're going to do it right. And they're going to make it as a, as a serious like um, drama. And he says that he has enlisted Chevy chase to play, uh, to play the role. Perfect. Of, uh, Another, of, another universally beloved comedy figure. <laughs> um, and part of this is uh, is that by this point in time, 1997, Holocaust movies have come full circle. Um, now, post Schindler's List, as you say, um, the idea of the Holocaust as a as a way of I mean, as kind of the ultimate dramatic vehicle, the ultimate immediately imports a sense of uh, immediately delivers a sense of importance to a to a script, right? And I think there are a lot of people in uh, in Hollywood that were now the next generation who were not people that necessarily would have survived the Holocaust, but were their children, their generation of children who felt like this was a story they were close enough to that they needed to tell, but far enough away from that they weren't just trying to block it out of their memories. And so the Holocaust became a topic. And Schindler's List came out in 1993. And as you remember, kind of swept the the nation's attention. Um Spielberg finally won that Oscar. Spielberg, after all the all this time, uh, it was nominated for twelve Academy Awards. It was the cause celeb of that year. But in 1997, 
a film that was very close in uh, in idea, at least, to The Day the Clown Cried. La vita è bella. That's right. Life is beautiful. Also, one, and it was the it was a foreign language film, but that one uh, best actor. Yeah, Roberto Benigni won Best Actor for Roberto Benigni. jumping up on people's chairs, if you remember. And he was a kind of, you know, frenetic personality, but that portrayed the Holocaust as a kind of almost feel-good comedy. If you don't, if you don't remember the movie, if it... If the memory of it has not existed to the far future, it is essentially the premise of the day the clown cried. The guy's thrown into a, you know, we, we see this um, kind of friendly Jewish Pied Piper character, friend to all the children, kind of a shopkeeper, bookstore owner guy who gets thrown into a concentration camp and decides it's his mission to, to distract the children with laughter right. in the camp. And he spends the rest of the movie uh, putting on putting on little slapstick acts in the camps to distract the kids from the fact that uh, of the reality of what's going on. And it's a really uncomfortable mix of, of uh, kind of mawkish sentimentality with goofy comedy that I don't really think works. But again, in 1997, everybody was gaga for it. At you'll the, laugh, you'll cry. At the time there was a minority critical consensus that life is beautiful was terrible, misguided and, uh, awkward and awful. I mean, if it works emotionally for you, you're going to appreciate it even more that this movie really threads the needle. Right. It's a Holocaust comedy that you're actually going to, you'll feel good about. It was a massive hit and, and uh, you know, Ebert gave it three and a half out of four stars or whatever their rating system was. Um, and there was some consensus that people that hated the movie and felt that it was mawkish were the ones that didn't get it. They were the ones that... Um, they were the culture police or the oversensitive uh, left that couldn't that couldn't understand that um, they're scolding, yeah, you know, ivory tower, fake highbrows, and that that what the movie really was was a was a profound uh, interrogation of of man's life in, and left, man's inhumanity to man, That's right. and so forth, uh, and then. Not very long after that, 1999, only two years later, the Robin Williams vehicle. I forgot about that. And Robin Williams was also considered, before Chevy Chase got the role, considered as a potential lead for the remake of The Day the Clown Cried. Somehow that didn't turn out, but he uh, he then starred in the comedy drama film, which is a, which is a tough hyphen to take sometimes, Jacob the Liar. Uh, which is a, another like set in the ghetto and in a concentration camp where a man. Um, I totally forgot about that. A movie. man tries to lighten the burden on, on his fellows by giving them hope by lying to them. And he gets caught in a series of lies and he didn't, it, it wasn't intentional, but pretty soon, you know, he has to keep these lies going because everybody's counting on him. The Holocaust is dramatically tricky. Because if, yes. if you tell it straight, I mean, it's it's hard to see what the arc is. If you tell it straight, uh, there's it's not there's no, you know, what what uh, who are we rooting for? What triumph are we going to see? We we know what happened in the Holocaust. There's there's no hope to be drawn from that. Uh, it's one of the prime criticisms. But if you, but of, if you show a if you show a, a 
a successful exception, even as Spielberg does in Schindler's List, if you're showing people who escape the Holocaust for some reason, are you denying the enormity of it? That's right. Uh, that's the that's the primary criticism of Schindler's List is that it tells the story of six million dead by fix fixing its attention on a bunch of people that survive. And then you got that indefensible scene where they're led to the showers only to find. It's actually the showers. Yeah. Like, it's building Hitchcockian suspense out of the Holocaust. And that actually happens in the miniseries, The Holocaust, too. And at the time, to great effect, because Mm -hmm. you don't want your lead characters to die. You don't want all six million of your friends to die. Um, And so, Holocaust movies, really, the uh, the only way you can have redemption in them is uh, the... Jewish War of Independence in 1948, which is also very problematic to the left. If they're, <laughs> you know, depends on whether they're wearing a kaftia or not at the protest. Um, but during this whole sort of Jacob the Liar era of Holocaust movie reassessment, all of a sudden there's this kind of attempt to reevaluate. The day the clown cried, and Jerry Lewis is still alive at this point. Right, he didn't die till 2017. And throughout this whole period, Jerry Lewis is kind of extremely um, not defensive about the film. He comes out as maybe its most impassioned critic. Anytime it's brought up in an interview, he says it's an awful movie. Uh, uh, it's an embarrassment to me. It will never see the light of day. Uh, it was horribly misguided, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like I heard rumors that he, you know, he was guarding over it so carefully, so watchfully to make sure it wouldn't be seen that it's the equivalent of having, you know, a, hand, a briefcase handcuffed to him, you yeah. know, that he, that he would never let anyone open. If people wanted an interview with Jerry Lewis, and Jerry Lewis throughout this time also went through a, a long period where nobody was really paying attention to him, and then he had, he was in The King of Comedy, which kind of actually did establish him briefly as a dramatic actor. Um, a kind of lauded performance. It was a prequel to the Joker. It was a prequel to the Joker. And then, you know, sort of toward the end of his life, he was, he was given a last reassessment by comedians and everybody kind of came out and gave, gave him some props. But if if you live long enough throughout that whole period, if you were going to do an interview with Jerry Lewis, his publicist would say, do not ask about the day the clown cried and aggressive, Reporters or people would kind of uh, blindside him with questions about it, and he always answered the same, like, it's garbage, don't ask me about it, it's an embarrassment. And in a way, it really contributed to the idea that it was the Citizen Kane of terrible movies. Uh, and he had this copy of it that he said he would never show. And when people would ask him about it, he would say, you're never going to see the movie, so get it out of your head. Um. And these other copies that that somehow people claimed to have seen the film, nobody knows like where these where these copies came from, how they nobody knows who they were, where they came from. These underground viewing parties that some only Harry Shearer can go to. And when I was really introduced to th- that um, that culture, it was when I it, through rock and roll kind of got into that Largo group in the late '90s, early 2000s. And and suddenly was exposed to this, the day the clown cried culture that still was, it really existed. All these, you know, comedians and other LA people 
wanted to talk about it. They loved it. All of them had seen little bits and bobs. You know, somebody showed them three minutes of, of footage. Um, and the, the consensus that it was awful was so universal that it, it sucked all the air out of the room. There wasn't a version of the day the clown cried in anybody's imagination that might've had any redeeming qualities whatsoever. Jerry Lewis died as, uh, as recently as 2017 and upon his death or shortly, um, shortly thereafter, his family gave the, um, the rough cut, the film that they had to the library of Congress, which I think greedily accepted it. So this actually, they, they gave it to the library of Congress before Jerry Lewis had died. If he died in 2017, then they, they gave it to the library of Congress in 2015 with the, uh, with the caveat that it not be shown until 10 years later. So 2024, Oh, June of 2024. We're not so far away. The, I need to be elected to Congress before then so I can go check it out. The rough cut is there. And Library of Congress has no, uh, has no real capacity to release it as a feature film, to put it out on videotape. Um, and they haven't been given permission by the Lewis family to do so. But it will be there and available for viewing if you go through the whole rigmarole of going to the Library of Congress and signing up and – and watching it there probably on yeah, a which, oscilloscope. Which I believe something. citizens can do. Like, yeah. you know, to take out materials, you need to be part of a congressional office. You need to be a staffer. But I think just to see materials there, I believe uh, anybody in DC can get a, can get a reader card. Yeah. And, and maybe Patton Oswald will go do it. I don't think I will. And it's possible that once the film has come out and enough people have seen it, that the, that the mystery has dissipated somewhat, that maybe the, maybe Jerry Lewis's, uh, estate will actually release it to the to the wider world. Well, it seems likely that it cannot compete with this image of it. Like that, even if it's a a badly judged piece of art, that everyone's just going to say, "Oh, well, actually, it's no worse than Jacob the Liar," right? I mean, isn't that a possibility? So, in 2016, 31 minutes of it was released in a documentary about it in German called Der Clown. And Dirk Clown, you know, featured interviews and a lot of material around it. And then these 31 excerpted minutes, which spent some time on YouTube. And I think the consensus about what was seen was very mixed and, and relied on your attitude about it going in. Um, that if you were looking for it to be the worst thing you'd ever seen, it was kind of like Phantom Menace. If you went to see Phantom Menace and thought that it was that seeing a new uh, Star Wars movie was the greatest event in cinema history, it might have taken you two or three viewings to realize what an incredible abomination and insult to the intelligence. That is, is what happened to me. Like the mass hypnosis lasted through the first time I saw it. I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I want to believe that Trade Federation really does need, you know, special exemptions from taxation. And I had a friend who was immediately like, no, this is not good. It doesn't, it's not Star Warsy at all. And it, it wasn't until the second time I saw it that I realized he was right. Roger, like the, Roger. The mass hypnosis had lasted for, for a full two hours. Well, so around this time, Bruce Handy, who wrote the original article for Spy, mm -hmm. interviewed the French director Jean-Michel Frodon, who had seen the film and was a, a revered figure in French cinema. 
And within the interview, uh, Frodon sort of dispelled the idea, or tried to dispel the idea that this film was um, was a misfire. He said that, in his view, Jerry Lewis had successfully threaded the needle, and that if the film had come out in 1997 or 1992, that it would be sort of universally regarded as the first serious take about the Holocaust in and the, and an incredibly uncomfortable, but he said that's the point. It was the point, and it would be the point of trying to depict the Holocaust in in these terms, in these like tragicomic terms. And he but went that's, to. That's going to be tempting, though, if you're a critic to have that kind of contrarian take. It is tempting, especially if you're a French critic and it's and it makes Jerry Lewis look good. You know, you, you're the lone. The French are used to being the lone voice who can see the the quality in this low culture figure, but it but it introduces the idea that the um, the notion of it being an abomination is also kind of culturally determined yeah. by how people thought about this kind of topic, this kind of uh, comedic take. Jerry Lewis as a figure, a cultural figure of fun, and then right in this period of ridicule and then the alt comedy culture of of trash com or trash culture mockery um sort of that ironic superiority to things i can see it kind of playing the way life is beautiful does where if you go in thinking what a heart tugging story this is about a light of hope in the darkest of places you might be persuaded to think that and if you're told only rubes think that this is a master this is a monument to bad taste, you might think that as well, because the stakes are so high. And again, the Holocaust is just something we don't know how to think about just because of the scale of it. Well, we have four more years to wait. Everyone in the future has already seen The Day the Clown Cried. It may be considered one of the great the great films of the maybe, 20th century. Maybe everybody watches it on Thanksgiving like The Wizard of Oz already gathers around in the future and enjoys The Day the Clown Cried. And that concludes The Day the Clown Cried, entry 317.ps12605, certificate number 46512, in the omnibus. Future links, we certainly hope that social media does not exist in your area, except as a method of delivering Jerry Lewis films to the descendants of the French, should they have any. Uh, in our day, you could find us at, at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick, respectively, on uh, Twitter, at Omnibus Project, jointly on Twitter and many other platforms. John was on Instagram as well, but don't hold that against him. I was amazing there. I was really, I mean, I haven't been posting a lot lately because I shaved my beard and I have this silly ass mustache. My daughter said, you have all this chubbins on your chin. And I was like, hmm. I didn't know she made up the word chubbins. Chubbins. She grabbed, she grabbed kind of the side of your lower cheek and, and showed how much of it she could produce. She was like, look at this chubbins. And I was like, <laughs> ugh. I thought that was a cutesy word you guys made up, but no, she, it just occurred to her. Oh, no, no. It's a cutesy word that we made up, but it shouldn't be applied to my face. <laughs> uh, so, But there are photos of John's face in kind of its current uh, Thailand sex tourist yeah. uh, uh, incarnation. It's a pity, but, but if you're from the future, you can go all the way back to... To the summer of 2020. This one under the uh, the uh, time capsule until October. 
And your beard will have grown back because you've got one of those beards. Yeah, let's hope. Well, so this is coming out right around Halloween. So if you want to really get scared, go look at the go look at early my, August photos my, my Instagram, Instagram feed. Uh, you can find fellow uh, listeners to the Omnibus uh, at the Futurelings groups on Facebook and Reddit. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can send us physical mail. This one here is quite a story because uh, when Mindy ran by the post office to pick up the mail, this was one they uh, this said it was, uh, this is insufficient postage. You're going to have to pay like two more bucks to oh, get so this. You had to, you had to buy this one out of, out of prison, huh? Well, Mindy immediately said, no, no, thank you. And they're like, what? And she's like, I don't want it. And they're like, but it's your mail. And she said, no, it's just, it's just unsolicited. My husband has a podcast and the, you know, the one employee kind of looks at her. She waited in line for a long time because this is going to be hard to believe that the president of the United States is trying to kill the post office right now. It's a whole thing. What? You're kidding me. And that's uh, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So the single employee just could not understand why she didn't want this. So they're like, okay, we're going to have to stamp it and send it back. And she walks out to her car and the, the postal employee comes running after and says, no, 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 I got it wrong. They had too much postage on it. Uh-oh. So you can still have it. Come back in. So she gets back in line. And when she finally gets back to the front, the person checks and says, oh, no, I was I was wrong all along. There is insufficient postage. <laughs> if there had been too much postage, would they have given her $2? I don't think so. So did she end up paying the $2 or did they just give it to her? She said, well, fine, you can have it. But you know what? I've already stamped refused. And Mindy was like, well, I don't, I don't really know. That's some post office or, or inside care. baseball. So what they did was they scratched out the refused stamp with a blue ballpoint pen. And we were able to get this note from Luna. Looks like handwritten note. It's a lovely handwritten note. Um, she remembers you talking about wanting a trophy of your own, like my Jeopardy one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she sent you this in a pouch. I don't oh, know what it she is. She sent I, me a pouch. I haven't looked in the pouch. I didn't say I wanted a pouch. What's in the pouch? Let's open it up here. The pouch says, congratulations. Oh, it's a medal. A medal that uh, that hangs from a, like a like a ribbon. It's like the medal that Chewbacca didn't get. <laughs> but it says, it says 2020. It says 2020 on the, on the lanyard. And then the medal. Is that a county fair? <laughs> the medal actually. Are you the biggest pig? Is a medal and it says best musician slash podcaster slash Alaskan John Roderick. And I think. Oh, wow. I think if you, if you put that many conditions on it, I'm not the best musician. I'm not even sure I'm the best musician podcaster. No, maybe it's or. You're you're the best at all in all those fields. I have to be the not best. Not just the intersection of it. You, know, you don't think it's just intersection? No, it's the union of all these things. The best musician, podcaster. And Alaska. And Alaska. In all three of those fields, you're number one. Here, here. But only for four more months because it says 2020 on it. Thank you so much for this. It's uh, it's It's an incredible gift and I will wear it now as part of... My royal outfit that I that I put on every once in a while when I want respect around here. She also sent us two silk masks uh, for the podcast. She apologizes if they're not sea silk, but these are lovely. They're like kimonos. Oh, oh I can I have the can I have the black one? Sure. You take the blue one. Sure. Mine's blue and gold, uh, like the Cub Scouts. Oh, that is very silky. And she also wants us to sign her her Hello. mountain postcard, which we would be happy to do, Luna. Thank you so much for sending us all that. Thank you, Luna. We also have a series of uh, of more beautifully watercolored postcards 
from our friend Mark. One is a can of Libby's pumpkin. Mm-hmm. I assume from oh, the... he's he's going back, back, back. That's that's a Thanksgiving show from 2018 or yeah. something. And of course, a mail truck. Oh, that's a beautiful rendition of a mail truck. These are lovely. I'm gonna have to put all these in a frame. A giant one of those giant frames that's made for like family photos. And is this is this also from? No, we have a we have a second water. Oh, this is David Chelsea, our our Portland cartoonist friend. Uh, I guess because we asked for watercolors, he obliged us with this beautiful envelope. Oh, whoa! Look at that! Whoa! Is that that's watercolored on that envelope? It's Lily Pulitzer. Yeah, I thought it was pre-printed. Whoa! Isn't that beautiful? It is beautiful. Is there something inside? Yes, a lengthy note which I haven't read, and then. Watercolors of me and three other people named Jennings, including... Uh, Waylon Jennings. Waylon Jennings, ABC newscaster Peter Jennings, and some kind of maybe Playboy centerfold named Claudia Jennings. Hello, Claudia I'm Jennings. Not, She's the one I'm most interested yeah, in. Yeah, no one's going to be looking at my weird-shaped face I'm there. Gonna, I'm going to Google Claudia Jennings right now. And also what appears to be um, a copy of kind of a stipple portrait of... I don't know because I'm reading this in real time. Well, if it's not me, I'm gonna I'm gonna wonder why I didn't make the cut here for these arts. It is definitely not you. Oh, Claudia Jennings is the Queen of the Bees, some kind of a schlock movie actress from the '70s who died in a car crash in 1979. Well, oh. well, that's very sad. No, that is sad. No relation, I hope. Uh. Well, she was also some sort of Playboy uh, uh, star because. Of course, the first thing I did was Google Claudia Jennings NSFW, and, uh, and there's <laughs> Is that just, your secret? Yeah, there's. Just, I did that with Ken Jennings, too. I just put that at the end of every Google search, just in case. NSFW. You, you never know what you're going to get. Who knows? Uh, you know, I, took, I turned safe search off and said, spiders. Uh, this is, a, this is a, por- a stipple portrait of Meta Jardine, postal worker, which he, which he did on an envelope for some kind of a, a mail... A male art show in not M A L E, but M-I-M-A-I-L. no, no, literal, literal envelope art, sending small scale work through the postal system. Oh, this is a whole thing. I don't know who Meta Jardine is. It says she. He says she was a postal worker at the end of her life, but before that, she was. Is it M E T A? Yes. I she think I think that Claudia Jennings might have been in a uh, in a roller derby movie called Unholy Rollers. Have you seen it? Uh, roller Derby Apocalypse, where he mentioned like she he mentioned she's in Gator Bait, The Great Texas Dynamite Chase, and Truck Stop Women. Oh my God, The Great Texas Dynamite Chase has a very significant role in my young life. Um. And I don't want to know. No, you don't. But it's a it's amazing that that you became went from a boy to a man and that I have eight minutes into. I have a I have a deep connection to the Great Texas Dynamite Chase. So well done. Well, I think you, then you deserve this portrait of of Claudia. Well, no, it's got a portrait of you next to it. That's not what I want. Well, we can't divide. It. We'll have to timeshare it. You get that six months out of the year. Maybe maybe I'll just cut it up with a pair of scissors. Uh, Meta Jardine is an art school friend of David's. I see. She's got IMDb credits for her wardrobe and costuming oh, work. Yeah, look at that. And she was a postal worker at the end of her life, so she, he thought she was appropriate. Thank you so much. This is lovely. We now have multiple people sending us 
lovely watercolors, and it kind of makes me feel bad. Why does it make you feel bad? Well, because... Uh, it makes me feel amazing. Well, think of all the work that went into these. We'll at least put them on the Patreon, so potentially thousands of people can see them. And well, you, you could see them, too. Uh, if you were right. to, Not you, John. You can see them right now. I'm looking at them. But you, the listener, should you become a supporter of Omnibus on Patreon... Uh, could enjoy these watercolor postcards as well. You can do that and enjoy other fine perks at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Uh, what else did I do? The mail. Did I do the address? If you want to no. send us your own watercolors, and keep in mind, we have a very high standard right now. These are lovely. Uh, you can send them to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Futurelings... From our vantage point in your distant past, only 40 years since the great Texas dynamite chase, uh, we have no idea how long our civilization survived or whether it ever achieved those heights again. Uh, We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.